Let's begin our, our time with prayer. Father, again tonight we're conscious of our need for You. That You would open up Your Word to us by Your Spirit. And that You would enable us to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask that You would do that tonight. That You would be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we're thinking about the emotions of Christ. And we've worked through several already. And we're, we're, we are on the last three. Tonight we're thinking about Jesus' astonishment. The fact that He gets amazed at times. And so that's where we're going tonight. So going right from the beginning here, we're thinking we're going to begin by de- defining our terms. We've been having a pattern here in these courses. We're defining, we're observing, and then we're learning. So that's where we're going again tonight. And there's really only one word that is used to describe Christ's astonishment in the New Testament, and it is this Greek word, thaumazo. You could translate it astonishment, or marvel, or wonder. All of those would do. Like several of the emotions that we've looked at so far, this word thaumazo can be used in both a positive and in a negative sense. It can be used in a positive sense to, to mean to be extraordinarily impressed by something. The astonishment of admiration, wonder, surprise. I remember the day when sitting in the ultrasound room, my wife and I received news that she was expecting twins. And there we were shocked. Very much surprised. Staggered, you might say. Stupefied. It was completely unexpected, but it was a positive surprise, not a negative one. But it can, this word can also be referred to, referred to a negative reaction. It can mean to be disturbed at something, to be shocked, to be stunned, to be astounded. What are you doing? How is this possible? That's the kind of astonishment we might experience when the doctor announces to us that we have stage four cancer and only weeks to live. Shock, dismay, but in a negative sense, one that leads perhaps to grief or fear or anger. So this is this word thaumazo that we're considering tonight. Note that it is a filtering emotion. You could think of it that way. It's an, a filtering emotion. That is, it is an emotion that acts like a filter on our experience. It signals to us that this event, and not all those millions of other events, merits our attention. It's important. It matters. And so you could say it acts like a filter. It helps us sift through what really matters, what is important, what we need to pay attention to. You'll note as well, from your own experience, that astonishment or amazement is an emotion that is generally short-lived. It's, it transitions very quickly into another emotion, either joy uh, or perhaps anger, fear, or, or some other negative emotion. But it is a short-lived emotion that transitions into something else. And the third thing I want to say about this word as we're thinking about it, as we introduce this word, is that it is a human emotion. 
That is, astonishment is an emotion that we tend to think of as being more human than divine. Now, why do I say that? Because the emotion of astonishment implies surprise, being caught off guard, which of course implies some degree of ignorance, of not knowing. Now, of course, we know God is never surprised in that sense. He's never caught off guard. Why? Because He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. And here is where we struggle perhaps a little bit with the reality of the Incarnation. Remember that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And so we have these very interesting dilemmas or struggles that, that, that we wrestle with in His as we think about him, is that as you read the Gospels, you read that he was, for instance, tired. And yet at the same time, he never ceases to be the omnipotent God. Isn't that incredible? You read about him being hungry and thirsty, and yet he never ceases to be the self-existent, self-sufficient God. We read about him being astonished, surprised, And yet he never ceases to be the omniscient God. There's mystery there. Mystery that we cannot unravel. But I want to be clear that the fact that Jesus experienced astonishment on earth does not imply that God gets blindsided by events on this earth or is less than omniscient or all-knowing. But what I think it does communicate to us, and this is important for us tonight, is that Christ's experience of astonishment highlights for us what really matters to God. Does that make sense? It's a filter. And it's allowing us to see what really matters to God. And so I hope we'll see that tonight. So let's observe now. Let's spend some time observing this emotion within Jesus. The word tamazo is used 30 times in the Gospels alongside other synonyms that communicate the same idea, surprise, astonishment. And most of the time it refers to the crowds, the people being astonished at Christ because of His words, because of His mighty deeds. But only three times is it used in reference to Jesus Himself. And two of those times, it's speaking of the exact same event, one in Matthew, one in Luke. So really, when you boil it all down, the Gospels only explicitly tell us that Jesus reacted with thaumazo, with surprise, twice. Now, there's every indication in the Gospels that up to the age of about 30, Jesus led a fairly unremarkable life. The only exception to that would be the event in which Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, stays behind in Jerusalem after the Passover and is found conversing there with some religious leaders, some teachers in the temple. And we are told in Luke chapter 2 that his parents obviously were looking for them. I can only imagine, I have a, a son who's almost 12 years old, and I can only imagine what it would feel like as parents to not be able to find him for three days. Where is our son? And we know here it says, and after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were 
amazed. It's not their word thaumazo, but it's a synonym. It's this astonishment at his understanding. But here, in a positive sense, right? They're pleasantly surprised at his brilliance, at his capacity to interact with them. But when they, the parents, saw him, they were astonished in a negative way, right? And his mother said, son, why have you treated us this way? Like, where have you been? What are you thinking? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And there you see the two, the positive and the negative, uh, interacting in that one story. But apart from this one story, really Jesus led, as far as we know, a very unremarkable, normal life. But then one day, he puts down his carpenter's tool, carpenter tools and how he knew to do this at this moment, we don't know, but he does it. He journeys to the Jordan River and he gets baptized by his cousin John. And there begins a remarkable and extraordinary, you'd say astonishing ministry. He begins to preach, but not like the scribes. He preaches with authority. He begins to not only preach, but act with authority. You see him healing diseases, restoring the paralyzed, delivering people from demonic oppression, calming storms, even raising a young girl from the dead. Now Jesus chose to set up his headquarters, not in Nazareth where he grew up, but in Capernaum. Capernaum was a strategic location on a main thoroughfare He was also right on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and so he could easily have access to other cities and and other places along the shore. And it appears that Jesus, for the most part, had been ministering outside of his hometown, outside of Nazareth. But then he decides to visit his his hometown, and and that's the first occasion we're going to look at. So if you turn to Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, He decides to go to his hometown and he comes to his own people. This is the people he grew up with. We have to understand that. The people who knew him best. Nazareth was estimated that it was about 600 people. Very small. He would have known just about everybody. Everybody knows each other at that level. Now we have to understand that by this time word has spread. So the people of Nazareth have heard of Jesus. They've heard of his teachings. They've heard of his miracles. But it seems like they aren't quite sure what to think of him. At least that's the impression that we are given here in Mark chapter 6. So let's read this short passage and make some comments on it. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own home, in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. Verse 5, And he could do no miracles there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered, there's our word, thalmazod, at their unbelief. 
He wondered at their unbelief. So Jesus arrives at his hometown. Mark makes it clear that Jesus isn't coming to Nazareth just for a visit, just for a friendly, you know, to visit his mom, to visit his siblings. That's not why he's coming. He's coming as a man on a mission. He is a rabbi who is being followed by his disciples. He's coming as part of his ministry. And it appears that he arrives a few days before the Sabbath. And when the Sabbath comes, the whole town crowds into the synagogue to hear him. We are told many people are there listening. And as Jesus teaches them, they are surprised. They are shocked. They are astounded. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is this a positive or a negative surprise? Which is it? Is this surprise going to turn into joy and acceptance or anger and rejection? Well, the people begin to voice their astonishment and it takes the form of questions, as often our astonishment does. Like, what? What's going on? And this is what they do. And at first, their questions are fairly neutral. You can see there in in verse 2, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And these miracles performed by his hands, note that they're concerned about where he got it, the source of his capacity to act in this way. And that's critical to understand. But then the questions become rhetorical and they move decidedly into the negative realm. And they begin asking, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and his brothers and his sisters, are they not here with us? In other words, who does he think he is? Isn't he just one of us? Why is he parading himself as some important rabbi and miracle worker? And then these words that we read in verse 3, into verse 3, and they took offense at him. The word offense is the word scandalizo from which we get our English word scandalized. Here it means that their reaction to Jesus led them to hold him in contempt, to distrust him, to distance themselves from him. I don't know about you, but when I take offense at someone, I want to distance myself from that person. I want to... Now we do that in different ways, right? Depending on our personality. We might distance ourselves from someone by yelling at them, by withdrawing from them, not speaking to them, or simply by walking away from them, getting away from them physically. And here we are told that they were offended at him. And this perhaps really helps us, I think, understand why we read in verse 5 that he could do no miracles. He was not able to do any miracles among them except lay his hands on a few sick people. You see, the fact that Jesus was working big supernatural miracles was not being contested by these people, by his friends, by his acquaintances. But the Jews understood, the Jews understood that when something supernatural occurred, it could only come from one of two sources, a supernatural event has a supernatural source. And there are only two possible sources. God or Satan. And this is why the religious leaders often, at several points, accuse Jesus of coming from Satan himself. And you can see the people here of Nazareth wrestling with this. 
Where does Jesus come from? Where does he get these powers, these miracles? Now, although the text doesn't say it, the fact that they reject Jesus demonstrates that they were questioning the very source of his supernatural ability to work miracles. Now, if you believed in God, would you bring your sick child to a sorcerer? To someone you think is animated by a demonic being? Would you do that? No. You would distance yourself from that person. You see, this points to the hardness of heart in Nazareth, to the doubts and unbelief of the people there, such that they refused to be healed by Jesus. They refused to bring their sick to Jesus. I want to be clear here. Unbelief hinders Jesus from working, not because he is suddenly incapable of working a miracle when faced with an atmosphere of unbelief. Jesus is not hindered from working a miracle just because there's an unbelieving atmosphere. Sometimes we think that's the, that's the situation here. Jesus stills the storm in a full-out panic. There's not a lot of faith going on, but it doesn't stop him from, heal, from, from stopping the storm. Jesus calls Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and it's all unbelief. Don't roll the stone away. He's stinking, you know. But it doesn't stop him from working a miracle. What stops Jesus from working miracles? It's not that suddenly... He tries to work this miracle. This person is in front of him at Nazareth and he tries to hold his hands out, touch him, and the power just won't come out of him. That's not what's going on here. It's that the people won't come to him. The people don't recognize their need. The people are distrusting him. The people are offended by him and they're not coming to him. And there's something about Jesus. He will not impose himself on you or me. He will not force you to come to Him. So He couldn't do any miracles. Why could, he, why could He not do many miracles? Because they simply wouldn't come to Him. And this unbelief, and particularly the strength of their unbelief, causes Jesus to wonder, to be astonished. Not in a positive way, but in a negative way, leading most likely to grief and sadness. These are people he knew. These are people he loved. These are people who were friends of his, that he desired to minister to. He, he wanted to impart something of God's new kingdom blessings. And they refused. Now, perhaps Jesus expected some doubt, some questioning from his hometown, but he did not expect this depth of unbelief, this kind of hardness of heart, this kind of rejection, and he is surprised by it. He's surprised. Now turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 7. Here we come to another story. And it's a story that provides a huge contrast to the one that we were just focusing on. It is the story of a centurion in Capernaum. So we're not in Nazareth now, we're back in Capernaum. 
There are two accounts of the story, one in Matthew, one in Luke. Matthew's version is condensed. Luke's is the most comprehensive. So it's the one we're going to look at tonight. Luke chapter 7. Are y'all hanging in there with me? I want to make sure y'all are with me. Okay, Luke chapter 7. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, as one commentator points out, this particular story is full of surprises. It's a whole story about surprise, in a sense. And the very first surprise that greets us is the fact that there's a centurion in the story. A Roman soldier. Now, you have to understand, Roman soldiers were hated by the Jews. Why were they hated? Well, the Romans were the occupying forces. And they were often brutal and even abusive in their handling of the Jews. So they were hated. But what else is surprising? This Roman centurion is different. He's a good guy. He's a good man. He has Jews going to Jesus on his behalf. That's incredible. That's almost like uncomprehensible in, in, in this day and what's, what's going on. But this man loves the Jewish nation, has built a synagogue for the people of Nazareth, has at least helped with it. And so this is quite surprising. What else is surprising? Well, the, the fact that the centurion has a slave. Now, it's not surprising that he has a slave. He probably had multiple slaves. But what's surprising is that the centurion cares for his slave. Slaves were, you know, they, they were property. That's the way they were considered. But he cares about his slave. He's concerned about his slave. We're told here in verse 2 um, that he was a slave who was highly regarded by the centurion. And so the centurion acts on his behalf. So, so far there's a lot of surprises, but we haven't reached the biggest surprise yet. The text here stresses the centurion's humility. Now think about this. This man is a centurion. He's not just a lowly private. He's in command. He's a commanding officer in the Roman army. And note the humility of his approach to Jesus when Jesus gets close to the centurion's home, the centurion sends friends out to meet Jesus. The centurion didn't even consider himself worthy for Jesus to come into his home. 
And he didn't even consider himself worthy to have a face-to-face contact with Jesus. And this is quite amazing. Because the centurion is showing utmost respect and honor for Jesus Christ, a lowly Jew. He's showing the kind of respect that he might have given to the emperor himself. Like, oh, you know, I'm not worthy even to be in your presence. And he's giving it to Jesus. But the story crescendos with these words. Just say the word. It's really a message. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Why? Look, look at the reasoning this man has. I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does this. And we see here the centurion's penetrating insight into the spiritual realm. He understands that just as he has been commissioned by the Roman military, Jesus has been commissioned by God. And he acts with God's authority. You see, Jesus' own people, it's quite amazing. The Jews often were skeptical of Jesus. They questioned Jesus. They doubted Jesus. We saw that with Nazareth. We see that with the religious leaders over and over and over again, doubting Jesus. But here is a Roman centurion. And he expresses absolute trust in Jesus' authority to heal. That's incredible. And Jesus marvels. Thaumazo, verse 9. So I haven't seen this kind of faith even in all of Israel. What is Jesus astonished about? Well, he's astonished at the greatness of this man's faith. The greatness of this man's faith. He's surprised. He did not expect to discover such great faith in such an unlikely place. Excuse me. Ooh. Everybody's listening now. No one's asleep. <laughs> Good. Now, clearly here, Jesus' reaction is positive, not negative. He's, this is a wonder of admiration. He's admiring this man's faith, and he's pleased, and he heals the centurion's servant. So let's try to summarize some observations from these two passages that we've considered. Number one. Jesus' astonishment in both stories is like a finger pointing to what really matters to God. It points to what matters to God. Note that both stories center on the element of faith. Faith matters to God. That's the first blank. Jesus isn't impressed by our education. He's not impressed by our financial position or our social standing. He's not impressed by the glitter and glamour of this world. In other words, he's not impressed by the things that often impress us, right, and capture our attention. But he is impressed by genuine faith. Nothing else elicits this kind of reaction from Jesus. Nothing surprises him like great unbelief or great faith. This is what causes him to pause, to to do a double take, to marvel. And we must pay attention because this is what matters most to God. 
I want you to notice something else that's quite fascinating in these stories. Note that it is those closest to Jesus that displayed the greatest unbelief. And it was that, that man, that centurion, who was in one sense furthest from Jesus, who expressed the greatest faith. It was quite fascinating. We're going to explore that just in a moment. But I think it's important to notice that. You see, in the people of Nazareth, familiarity bred contempt for Jesus. But for the centurion, he wouldn't even come out to meet Jesus because he considered himself unworthy. Now third, note that both stories, both the stories of faith and unbelief are vitally connected to the person of Jesus Christ. Biblical faith is a faith in the person of Jesus. That's really important. Both have to do with the grappling of the person of Jesus. They're not dealing with an idea, a theory. They're dealing with a person. And then number four, let's bring this out. Faith is one, you could say, of the most important commodities a person can possess in the spiritual realm. And I'm pulling this more from the larger a larger view of the, the doctrine of faith in the New Testament. But to have faith is to be exceedingly rich spiritually. To lack faith is to be exceedingly poor spiritually, even dead spiritually. Without faith, we cannot please God. Without faith, we cannot be justified by God. It is only by faith that we're made right with God and it is only by faith that we can walk with God. And so faith is critical. So let's try to apply some of this to our lives. Let's try to apply some of this. We're going to spend a little more time on application tonight. And the first is this question. What causes us to be astonished? You think about that for a moment. What, what causes us to go, wow, to be surprised? What causes us to be amazed, to marvel? Maybe we too need to be moved to a greater wonder at those things that really matter. Maybe we need our spiritual surprise filter to be recalibrated. I'm going to quote from Famous author Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I'm sure you've heard this before. She wrote, Earth crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. And what she's commenting on is the superficiality of our world. That there is grandeur around us. There is wonder around us, but we do not have eyes to see it. And we are taken up with the trivial. We are amazed and we wonder at what is insignificant. Think about the thousands upon thousands, probably millions upon millions of videos and pictures and tweets and all the rest of it that, that get put up on the internet, in order to make millions of millions of people go wow for a split second, only to quickly move on to the next wow. 
And often those things, those videos, those images are quite trivial. Mostly foolish. And I'm concerned about our day because I'm concerned that we are training our hearts to be amazed at what is trivial, at what is insignificant. And we're being numbed. We're being blinded to what truly matters. Doesn't that characterize our world to some degree? And so we must learn to wonder at what Christ wonders at, at what really matters. And that leads to two big applications tonight. And the first I'm pulling straight from the book of Hebrews. Just quoting here, Hebrews 3.12. One is a warning, the next is an encouragement. So we'll end on a positive note. But, but first a warning. We need to hear the warning. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. It's a strong warning. It's a warning to Christians. Just want you to remember again, to note again, that it was those who knew Christ best who failed to express faith in him. And that's quite startling. The reaction of the people of Nazareth illustrates a danger for us who have walked with Christ for some time. The book of Hebrews, in fact, was written to a people who had believed in Jesus some time ago. These are not new believers in the book of Hebrews. But they're in danger of hardening their own hearts. Slowly, perhaps unperceptively, we can cease to exercise faith in Christ. And we have to be warned. We must be careful of the sin of unbelief. What does unbelief look like? Well, Nazareth, the people of Nazareth give us a portrait of what unbelief looks like. So let's think about that for a moment. Unbelief is proud. Unbelief is proud. Pride is when I fail to understand properly who I am in relationship to who God is. Pride is when I understand there to be no distinction between Jesus and myself. He's just another person. Who is he to think that he's any better than me? Perhaps it can come from an over-familiarity, a false intimacy, that forgets that Christ is Lord of my life, that forgets that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not just my buddy to help me in my way. He's God. And I am man. I am the creature. He is the creator. And that leads to being offended. Unbelief is offended at Jesus. Proud people get offended. Proud people get offended at Jesus. We get offended at Him because He is not doing what we expect Him to do. He doesn't meet our expectations. And so we're offended at Him. And rather than acknowledging His perfect rule in our lives, we accuse Him of wrongdoing. And we distance ourselves from Him. We're offended at Him. 
And that leads to a refusal to come to Jesus and be helped by Jesus. See, if you're offended at Jesus, you won't come to him. You won't draw near. And here's the big danger. Unbelief, if it's left unchecked, will lead to that warning. It will lead to a falling away from the living God. You realize that? Unbelief, unchecked, will lead to a falling away from the living God. That lack of trust in Jesus, that cynicism towards him and his ways, it hardens our heart. It prevents us from drawing near to him. It blinds us to our need for Christ. I wonder if that's you tonight. Proud? Offended? And unwilling to come to Christ? It's a serious place to be. And if you are there, I urge you, humble yourself before God. Repent. Recognize your great need of a Savior. And come to Him humbly. If Jesus marveled over the unbelief of the unbelievers in his hometown, how much more does he marvel at the unbelief in his own people? Friends, let us be astonished and dismayed at what is truly shocking and appalling. What is truly shocking? Our own hardness of hearts. Isn't that true? Our own hardness of heart. Our capacity to know intimately the things of God. To have witnessed the works of God. And still be hardened against God. And refuse to come to God in simple trust. That is appalling. That is shocking. That is astonishing. And so let us repent of our unbelief. Let us repent of our pride. Let us repent of our taking offense at Jesus, being cynical of Him. Let us repent of our refusal to come to Him and see our need of Him. Let us take care. Lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So that's the caution for us tonight. But there's an encouragement for us tonight. A great encouragement. And it is this. Let us exercise faith in Jesus. Let us exercise faith in Jesus. What does Jesus admire? What, is, what impresses him? What makes him stop and go, wow! It's faith. Faith in himself. Faith is what matters to God. Faith is very precious to God. It pleases God when we exercise faith in Him. It pleases Him when we affirm our trust in Him. And the story of the centurion should be very encouraging to us. Here is a man who's far from God, and yet he expresses a simple and sincere faith in God, a great faith in God. 
And so we get this portrait of faith. Notice his faith. His faith was humble. Humility and faith are vitally linked. Humility is properly understanding myself with relationship to God. The centurion was not just flattering Jesus when he refused to come to his home. He truly recognized that he was not worthy of Christ. He properly understood his relation to Christ and where he stood in relationship to Christ. And he came with a great sense of his own need and a great sense of Christ's power to meet that need. Great humility leads to great faith. Great humility leads to great faith. But not only was his faith humble, his faith was reasonable. What do I mean by that? Clearly this man, the centurion, had been thinking about Jesus and meditating upon Jesus. This was a very thought-through message that he sent to Jesus via his friends. And he's not just, this is not just some leap of faith, some wishful, hopeful, you know, hopeful thinking. I hope, Jesus, you can do something for me. It's not um, just some leap in the... Leap in the dark. But it is a reasoned understanding of spiritual realities. It is understanding this is who you are. This is what's written in your word. And I believe it. He's using his mind. He comes to understand, the centurion came to understand that Jesus can heal by command. Why? Because he is backed by a higher authority. The authority of God. And so it's a humble faith, it's a reasoned faith, but note that his faith was specific. The centurion is asking for something very definite. What does he ask? He says here in verse 7, Just say the word and my servant will be healed. It's quite bold actually. He's in a sense commanding Jesus. Jesus, I know this about you. I know that you are able to do this. I know that you have the authority to do this. Say the word and my servant will be healed. And so his great faith is expressed by a bold request. A bold request. I wonder if you've ever thought about the wonder of faith. The astonishment of faith. The wonder of believing in something and someone that you cannot see or touch or feel. I want to quote at length a section out of Robert Law's book because he does such a good job grasping the wonder of faith. I don't think we wonder at this enough. Read with me. Uh, You can see it here on the screen. Know what he says. When you resist the temptations of pleasure or gain and patiently hold to the path of duty and self-denial because you believe in the righteous and faithful God. When you're content amid poverty because God is yours, and when you have peace in your soul and an everlasting hope because you believe in a God whose love bears the whole burden of your sin, then I think Christ himself must marvel and rejoice at your faith. For a weak human being in a world like this to have such faith is wonderful. 
Note how he continues. When we think what men and women of common clay like ourselves have done and suffered for the sake of a God they have never seen in the heaven beyond the clouds, how they have patiently suffered the loss of all things and have mounted the fiery pile with joy being burned at the stake, clasping their faith to their hearts. This surely is the most marvelous spectacle on earth that earth has to show. Think about what he's saying there. To see a man being burned at the stake for his faith in God is the most marvelous spectacle earth has to show. We do not half feel the wonderfulness of it. We're conscious chiefly of the flaws and imperfections of our faith. We feel how weak and struggling and ineffective it is. We do not see the glory nor feel the grandeur of it. But one day we shall. To have such faith in God in the eternal life of righteousness and love is the highest of which the human soul is capable. It is the triumph of the divine in man. Christ himself marvels at it. Isn't that incredible? The marvelous nature of faith. I hope that's encouraging to you tonight. But there is nothing more wonderful than that. That whatever is on your heart, whatever is troubling you tonight, whatever is filling your vision, remember this, that you can draw near to Christ in faith. You can exercise faith in Christ. And Christ marvels at it. I wonder if you have such faith in our Lord tonight. And I would encourage us, let us draw near to him. Let us draw near with humility, recognizing our unworthiness and his absolute greatness. Let us draw near, understanding the authority that has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Let us draw near with specific petitions, bold petitions, big petitions. And let us delight the heart of our Savior by exercising faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and ask that You would work this into our hearts. You'd work these truths into our hearts. You'd make us a people of faith. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.